Psalms 103 this morning, and I'd like to read the entire psalm. Uh, It's familiar to most of us, especially the first few verses. But I believe there is a great truth that is given to us throughout this whole psalm. So I want you to read very carefully with me. Beginning in verse number 1, the Word of God says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed." He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more." But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him, and His righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those that remember His commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye His angels that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all His hosts, all ye His hosts, ye ministers of His, that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Look back at verse number 2. Let's read this verse and then we'll pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Father in heaven, we thank You for this treasured time that You've allowed us to have. Lord, uh, if we had what we deserved, we'd be in hell this morning. Oh, Father, how vast a distance you've saved us. You've saved us from the pit of despair and the pit of hell, and you've placed us in your house. Lord, we praise you and thank you for it. Lord, I pray that this morning each heart would be touched and affected in a way that'd bring you glory. Lord, I do not know what each life needs, but it's not up to me to know, Lord, because the Holy Spirit of God can speak to hearts, and so we're trusting and depending on you to do that work which would bring you glory. Lord, I pray that You'd guard my lips. Lord, that I'd not say anything You wouldn't have me to say, but that You'd give me courage to say all that must be said. Lord, we love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read the 103rd Psalm, I want us to focus in for a few moments on the phrase that is used in verse 2, where the psalmist says to forget not all His benefits. Well, here we are, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I'm sure if you did like I did, you uh, cooked all day. Well, I didn't cook. My wife cooked all day on Wednesday. 
and uh, prepared uh, dishes, and we got up and we went. We had several uh, different places that we had to go. We had two different family Thanksgivings uh, to attend, and so we, we had one at our house. We headed out to Mom and Dad's, had one at their house. We've still got leftovers in the refrigerator. Somebody say amen there. That's a good show of self-restraint when it's Sunday and you still got leftovers. Of course, I ought to tell you it's because I bought a smoker over the weekend, so I smoked five-and-a-half-pound pork butt, so that's part of the reason. But we ate too much. We sat around. We enjoyed our family. We thought for a little while on all the things that God has done for us. But now here we are on Sunday. Tomorrow we'll start another work week. The turkeys will uh, will be put away. The pumpkins will begin to rot. The lights will come out. The wreaths will go on doors. What are we going to do over the next month, over the next six months, over the next year? You know, as I sat in Sunday school this morning, and this is what I mean by the way that the Lord orders things, the lesson was on not forgetting what God has done for us, being thankful not just on Thanksgiving but throughout the year. It's interesting to me that God would exhort His people to not forget His benefits. Now, wouldn't you think for a moment that if God... Uh, rolled open the curtains of heaven and stepped down onto earth and handed something into your hands that you'd cherish it for the rest of your life. And yet human nature would show us that some of us will wake up Monday morning grumbling over some things that we don't appreciate about our circumstances. There we were just a few days ago, gathered hand in hand around a bounteous feast upon a table in a warm house with a roof above our head with more stuff than we even know what to do with, thanking God for everything that He's done in our life. And it could be that tomorrow we'd wake up, complain about the weather, the rain that might be falling, or the responsibilities we have to go back to. My, what an indictment of human nature. You ever wonder if men are truly sinners? Just listen to them when they complain. We're all sinners, I know that. But we ought to endeavor to an attitude of thankfulness. I, you know, as I, as I considered this psalm and thought about this verse, I thought about that word benefits. Now, to some of you, that meant a lot. To people that are my age and are trying to get a job, we don't think much about benefits, do we? Some of you, when you took a job, the salary might have been such and such, but really what you was interested in was the benefits, maybe the health insurance, the retirement plan, maybe some kind of perks, maybe the vacation time, the sick time. Uh, now, I mean, people my age, we're just lucky to get 40 weeks or 40 hours in a week. Somebody say amen to that. But benefits is speaking of something that is a, a, an added asset to the condition that you are in. It is not the meat and potatoes of why you'd go to that job and you'd work. You'd go for the paycheck. But because of who you are, because of what you are doing, because of the status that you are considered to be a part of, there are some benefits to working that job that you have. Well, God says about His children that there are some benefits to being a child of God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that when I got saved, I didn't get saved so I could join a church. When I got saved, I didn't get saved so I'd be indwelt by the Holy Ghost. When I got saved, I didn't get saved so I could better understand the Bible. When I got saved, I didn't get saved so I could sleep better at night. I didn't get saved so that I could have a a sure promise even of a home in heaven. When I, as a ten-year-old boy, got saved, there was one reason, and one reason alone that I got saved. I knew that I was on my way to hell. The Spirit of God made that a reality to me. But you know something that I've found out ever since the day that I was born again? Every single day, God seems to unfold new aspects of this beautiful thing called salvation to my heart and life. 
we could say this, that we were eternally and absolutely saved the moment we accepted Christ. But oh, what a blessing it is to learn more of this great salvation that the Bible teaches of. You see, there were a lot of things happened when you got born again. Now, I'll get to Psalms here in a second, get to preaching here in a minute. But there were a lot of things happened when you got saved. Did you ever know that? Not only were you forgiven of your sins, uh, but you were redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, before you got saved, you belonged to the devil. You say, I don't believe that. Well, the Word of God teaches that. He was your father. Uh, the Christ said to the Pharisees that ye are of your father, the devil. And the, the Christ said this, that, that uh, those that are of the devil, they speak of their own. Speaking of the devil, you belonged to him. Uh, you were chained. Your destiny was the same destiny that he's got. I've got news for you. He's not a ruler in hell. He's headed to be bound in chains and cast into the lake of fire. You had the same destiny that he had. Well, you got purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin debt was paid, and you were redeemed unto Him. You got justified. Did you know that before you got saved, your best attempts at righteousness... People say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, what does God say about you being a pretty good person? The book of Isaiah tells us that our attempts at righteousness, the best that we can do... I'm talking about every time we give to a charity. I'm talking about every time that we go and, and, and pass out soup in a soup kitchen. I'm talking about every time that we, we help our neighbors. If we've got elderly or infirm neighbors, I'm talking about every good thing that we could possibly do. Every nickel that you drop in that Salvation Army bucket, everything that you might do is but filthy rags before an Almighty God. It's putrefying, it's rancid, it's rotten, it's decaying. It is of no worth and value to God. It may impress those that are around you, but it doesn't mean much to God. But you see, now if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you stand justified in Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? That means His righteousness has been substituted for your righteousness. So your righteousness wasn't good enough, but now when uh, the God of heaven looks down at me and you, if we've been born again, He doesn't see our attempts at righteousness, which are but filthy rags, but He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect and sinless. I could go on, you've been sanctified, you've been adopted, and we go through all the aspects of salvation. I'm just merely trying to convey this point to you. When I got born again, I didn't get born again for all of these things. I, I got born again because I was lost and on my way to hell, and I, and I knew that if I died in my condition, I'd die and go to hell. And I needed Christ to forgive me and save me. It was God with whom I had to do. He was the one I was dealing with. I wasn't worried about my parents, wasn't worried about the church that we attended, wasn't worried about my friends. It became a real personal thing between me and the God of heaven. I knew I stood as a guilty sinner before Him. And I asked for God's forgiveness. And you know, He saved me. He saved me. I know that He saved me. It's not I hope that He saved me. I know my life has been different from that day. And all these benefits began to be real in my life. Well, the psalmist says this. Those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't ever forget what those benefits are. Oh, how easy it is for us to forget all of the benefits that it is to being a child of God. And I want to give you three of them very quickly and say a word about it this morning. Uh, Look with me at the first few verses. I want to say that the first benefit of serving God is that we are covered by His pardon. Look what it says in the first few verses. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Now, up until now, the psalmist has not said anything about what God's done. 
I mean, he's just been excited. He's been happy. Uh, he's been what old-timers might have said. He's been in the glory. He's beside himself. He's exhorting himself to bless the Lord. He's rejoicing in, in, in the goodness of God and who and what God is. But he's not told us yet what he's thinking about. There could be a lot of things that began this psalm. He could have said, bless the Lord, O my soul, uh, you know, who, who protecteth me from my adversary. But that's not what he says at first. He could have said, bless the Lord, O my soul, who filleth my mouth with goodness. But that's not what he says at first. The first thing that the psalmist points to as being a reason for his rejoicing and his excitement is he says this, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. That being the first and foremost and primary and preeminent thing for which you and I have to rejoice. Let me tell you something. You say, preacher, I don't know if I've got anything to be thankful for this year. Are you still saved? You've got something to be thankful for. That's the first thing he points to. He says, above all things, God has forgiven me of my sins. I don't know what tomorrow will hold for you, but I know if you're saved today, you'll still be saved tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to, if the Lord will help us, we're going to preach tonight on the book of Job. And I don't want to jump ahead and, uh, and, and preach what I'm going to preach tonight. But suffice it to say, when everything fell apart, Job went back to the place where the sacrifice had been given. Uh, no matter what changed in his life, that could not change. Let me tell you something. I don't know what tomorrow may hold for you. You may wake up to a phone call from a doctor uh, informing you that you've only got a few months left. You may wake up to a phone call from the sheriff's department informing you that somebody that you love and somebody that you care about has passed out of this time and into eternity. You may wake up tomorrow. Uh, your house might catch fire. You might lose everything that you've got. I do not know. I hope none of that happens to you. But if it does, if you're saved today, you'll still be saved tomorrow. And that's something to rejoice in. He speaks of the pardon that God has given to us, but he doesn't just stop with that first aspect. He says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, but I want you to notice the scope of this pardon. Now, most preachers, if they preach on this psalm, this is what they preach on, and I'm going to try not to say too much about it or else we'll be here till 4 o'clock, but notice all the things that he says. He gives the scope of the pardon. Now, here's what I want you to do. Would you do this with me? Will you? Will you do this? Nod your head till it rattles if you'll help me with this, Okay. I want you to look at the first thing he mentions in verse 3. He says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Isn't that what it says? Shake your head till it rattles. Okay. Look down at verse number 5, and look what it says. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Now let's read it all together, okay? It says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Now you say, preacher, why would you read it that way? Well, here's why. I don't want to get bogged down. There's a lot to be preached there, and I've preached it before, and the Lord may let me preach it again. What I want you to notice is the scope of what this pardon has done. When he describes himself, before verse number 3, if we were to read this as a narrative history, before God forgave him, here he is, he's on his way to hell, here he is, a lost sinner, he's alienated from the God of heaven, he doesn't know, he might know the name of God, but he doesn't know God personally. Let me say this, do you know God personally, you don't know God at all, amen? Do you have a personal relationship with him? You don't have any kind of relationship with him. So here he is, and he meets the Lord. He meets God. And I understand that Christ hasn't been incarnate in the flesh. I'm aware of all those things. But in some way, he puts his faith effectually in the God of Israel, and God forgives him of his iniquities. But it doesn't stop there. Now, some of us, that's what we think about salvation. We think, okay, my sins are forgiven. I'm, I got my ticket to heaven. I'm on my way. But that's not what happens. 
He goes through and he lists several wonderful, beautiful things. But notice where that God took him. Here he is in the pit of despair and only going down. And then he meets God. And listen to how he's described in verse 5, "...who satisfied thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles." Here he was, a lost sinner on his way to hell. And now here he is flying and soaring at eagle's height and enjoying the goodness and benefit of knowing God. Let me tell you something. You know what old-timers used to call that? From the guttermost to the uttermost. I'm glad when God saves us, He don't just walk by and kick us inside of the head and say, aren't you forgiven and keep on walking. He comes and the psalmist described himself as being in the miry clay. And God didn't just throw him a rope. It would have been grace if God had just thrown him a rope. But no, God lifted him out of the miry clay, set his feet upon a solid rock, and established his going. I'm glad he doesn't just save us and then abandon us. He saves us that he might walk with us and bless us and help us. We see the scope of this pardon, how far he had saved him. Then I want you to notice the sympathy of this pardon. How is that accomplished? Well, look at verse number 6. The Bible says this, The Lord executeth righteous judgment, righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. You know what that tells us? That tells us God is paying attention to the things that happen in our life. He said, He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. So that tells us not only is God paying attention, but God lets us know that He's paying attention. It says in verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. So we understand this. Now that we are a child of God and we belong to Him, part of that pardon is this. God pays attention to our actions. God watches what we do and God makes aware to us what He expects of us. Now if you're like me, sometimes you sin. In fact, if you're like me, all the time you sin. Anybody like me in the building this morning? Sin all the time. What are we going to do about that? That sin still offends God. That sin still disrupts our fellowship or our communion with Him. Well, the psalmist encourages us by saying this, that though the Lord will make known to you when you've sinned, though the Lord will chasten you, He will not chide forever. His anger will not go on forever. Let me tell you something. I'm glad, though I may mess up, though I may sin, though I may do wrong in my life, if I'm willing to confess and forsake that sin before God, He'll forgive me. He'll give me communion once again. Man, that's a benefit of knowing God. Did you know that the sinner is never right with God till he's been to Calvary? The sinner is never right with God. He may be a good person. He may be a church-going person. He may be a likable person. He may be a generous person. But until he has had his past sin and his present sin and his future sin dealt with through the sacrifice of Calvary, he's not right with God. That's still a debt that he can't pay. But he's a good person, preacher. Yeah, but his good works are but filthy rags before God. They don't mean anything to him. Let me tell you something. You might as well go try to pay your mortgage in Confederate money. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, it might be good for some folks, but it don't mean much to the bank. Your good works, they might impress those around you, but that doesn't mean anything to the God of heaven. They're just filthy rags before him. But once you've been born again, then he deals with you. And we'll talk about this in a moment as a child. Then when you've sinned, let me tell you something. I, I get irritated sometimes with my little boy. I know you don't believe that because to y'all he never does anything wrong because y'all don't live with him. But, but I get irritated. But he's always my son. I'm never going to just throw him away. I will not remain angry forever. God doesn't either. He will not chide forever. Then I want you to notice the separation of this part. In verse number 10, what does it say? He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Oh, my 
I, I, I've really got to contain myself because I could just stop there and preach for a long, long time. Some of you say, Preacher, God's unfair to me. Well, yeah, God is unfair to you. Because if God was fair to you, you'd be in hell this morning. God's very unfair to you. If God really gave you what you deserved, you'd be in hell this morning right next to me because that's where both of us would be. He's not dealt with us after our sins. He's not rewarded us according to our iniquities. I don't care. Listen, you say, God's too hard on me sometimes. There's some sin in my life, and I don't want to get rid of it. God's just trying to wrench it from my hands. And it's not fair. Why won't God just let that rest? Let me tell you something. You better be glad God deals with you. Because if He just lets you alone, it'd be far worse. Far worse than Him dealing with you. He says this in verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth... Now, I'm not a tall man. I'm taller than some. I'm shorter than most. But no matter what I do, I can't reach to the heavens. You know what it's teaching us? It's teaching us this. We can never reach the limit of God's mercy. Once we know Him, once we have a relationship with God, then there's no point we reach in which God says, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm not dealing with you anymore. I won't forgive you anymore. You're, you, you've crossed a boundary. No matter how high we reach, no matter how far we go, we can never reach the end of God's mercy. You say, but preacher, are you telling me that God won't ever chase? No, God's going to chase you. Say, preacher, are you telling me that God won't ever take me out? No, God will take you out of this world. I believe that's my whole heart. I believe we can reach a place where God... But at that point, God's still not cast us off of His mercy. What's it going to mean for us if we were to leave this world? Well, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't care how you cut that. That's still merciful. That's still merciful. He says, in that way, as as, as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Now, you know what I like about that? There's a lot of ways God describes our sin being dealt with in the Bible. Sometimes it's described as being in the depths of the sea. Sometimes it's described as being behind the back of God. Sometimes it's described like here as being as far as as from the east and the west. I think my favorite one is in the book of Hebrews where it says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. There's a lot of ways that sin is is expressed as God dealing with it in the Bible. But you know what I like about this particular one? Now, remember, God's watching us. That's what the psalmist said. He executeth righteousness and judgment unto all them that are oppressed. He is watching our lives. The eyes of the Lord are upon all men, on the righteous and on the wicked. He's watching all of us. You know what it tells me? If He separated my sins as far as as the east is from the west, that means He can't be looking at me and looking at my sin at the same time. He's got to focus on one or the other. Somebody say amen to that. He has separated us. But it teaches me also this truth that when God saved us, you know one of the greatest benefits to being a child of God? I've already touched on it, but it's the fact that God deals with us. If you have sin in your life, you know what the cruelest thing that God could do for you? Let me ask you something. Uh, If you're a little child or grandchild or whoever it may be, if they decide that they want to play with a a poisonous viper and they pitched a fit and they whined and they said, Daddy or or Mama or Mama or Papa, I want to play with that. Would it be a merciful thing for you to leave that child alone with that snake? No. No. Let me tell you something. The worst thing that God could do, a true cruel act of the Almighty God of heaven would be to step away and allow us to be happy in our sin. He doesn't do that if you're a child of God. He deals with you. He convicts you. He chastens you. He chides with you. You know what that means, that word chide? It literally means, it has the idea of friction. In other words, uh, how many of you, you have heard about, you know, well, if that rubbed you the wrong way, just turn around. You've heard all that, rubbing a cat and everything. 
Let me tell you something. God makes our fellowship with Him uncomfortable when sin is present. <laughs> That's the reason. I've noticed this. When folks get sin in their life, one of the first things happens, they get out of church. Church, they don't enjoy it no more. Man, they get up and the preacher's preaching. It's like he's always stepping on their toes. The singers are singing and, and, and it sounds empty and hollow no matter what they do or what they partake in. The fellowship seems bitter and strained and contrary to their nature. Why? Because God is chiding with them. He's made it uncomfortable on you. Why? Because He's trying to bring you to a point where you have to choose Him or sin. One of the two. One of the two. That's gracious. Man, that's merciful. If God was being cruel to us, you know what He'd do? He'd say, all right, live however you want. Go ahead and lullaby yourself into, uh, in, into sleep. Go ahead and, and, and drift off and anesthetize your Christian walk and live however you want to live. That'd be truly cruel. Let me tell you something. One of the benefits of serving God is He works in our hearts and lives. And you know one of the things He's doing is He's separating us from our sin. He describes the pardon that's given to us. I want you to notice not only are we covered by His pardon, but I want you to notice in the next few verses, here's another benefit. We're covered by His pardon, but not only that, but we are counted as His people. Look what it says in verse number 13. The Bible says this, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. I'm interested by this verse. Here's why. Because of the phrase, like... I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. All through the Word of God, God is pictured as the Father of Israel. In the New Testament, He's pictured as the Father of those uh, that have accepted Christ as, as their Savior. He is our Father. Is that not true? God is He's our Father. And yet it says, like as a father pitieth his children. Now, that's what we would call simile. That's a comparison. Am I right? I'm not an English major. I struggle with English. I struggle with everything. Amen. I struggle with the hillbilly backwoods way that I talk, let alone trying to speak in any kind of way that would show up on a college SAT preparation test. But why would God use that terminology? Here's, there's a thought I want to convey to you, and I, and I hope you'll really stick with me. If not, you'll, you'll walk out of here, you'll call me a heretic. So I want you to listen close, okay? When we speak of God being our Father... Do we meet all the qualifications if we think of a father? Now, my father, he is a physical human being, at least I think. And I'm made of the same stuff that he's made of, and he's made of the same stuff that I'm made of. I'm the product of, of the marriage and love and relationship between my mother and my father. Uh, but one of the things that's necessary, I don't know if you know this. In fact, I know that society doesn't know this. But did you know that one of the things that's necessary to have a child is that both people have to be of the opposite gender, and they have to be together at some point. Right? Now, somebody needs to inform the news of that, but that's... That's true. It's still true. It's, all, it's always been true. And I have a suspicion. I'm not a prophet. But can I just, can I just surmise that that's always going to be true? <laughs> right? No matter what they legislate or what they pump through the television or what they put in public school curriculum, I just kind of think that's always going to be true. You consider the relationship that we have to God. Now, here's the question. I want you to listen carefully. We do not fit all the criteria 
when you consider the parameters of what makes the dynamic of the father-son the relationship. Could it be, listen carefully, not that God's relationship with us is a shadow of the father-son relationship, but could it be that the father-son relationship that we know with earthly relations is but a mere shadow of the relationship that the child of God has with God as his father? In other words, listen carefully. God doesn't say he's like a father so that we'll picture our father. God gives us fathers so that we'll picture what God's like. That's the simile. That's the comparison. In other words, however much pity that I have for my child, however much compassion that I have for him, and if you're a parent, you know what that's like. If you're not a parent, everybody tells you what it's like anyway. So you, you know that the love that you have for a child and the pity and compassion that you have for that child, it seems to know no bounds no matter what they do. You always love them. You always care about them. You're never going to turn your back on them. They're precious to you. All these things, that is merely a shadow. Merely a fraction of the pity and compassion that the God of heaven has for you and I. Man, what a blessing. We're counted as His people. And you know what that means first and foremost? It means He has compassion on us. He considers us. Notice what it says in the next verse. He knoweth our frame. (laughs) Let me tell you something. I don't know if you realize this, but when God saved you, He knew what you were. We uh, sometimes we'll go down to the auction. You know, they got an auction just down the road here, and uh, you'll go down to that auction. They have different ways of rating those cars. You ever been, raise your hand if you've been to that auction? Okay, all right. We got at least like three people that know what I'm talking about. Raise your hand if you've been to any auction. Okay, raise your hand if you know what the word auction means. Okay, good. Well, you'll take these cars down to this auction, right? And you'll go to run it through. But, I mean, they've only got like three days to put this auction together. So they've got a little system here. They have what they call red light and green light. Now, if if a car is a green light car, what that means is that the person selling it, they are guaranteeing that it's going to be free from any major defect for a certain period of time. And I don't remember what they call that. There's a name for it. Somebody here probably knows. But there's a certain period of time where you can do your due diligence, and if something is bad wrong with that car, you can bring it back, and that person can be liable for that. It's not very long, but you can do it. Then they have what's called red light. Red light means whatever you see, that's what you're buying. There are no guarantees behind that car. And the fellow at the auction, I always sort of like this. You know what he says? He's explaining that to people. And he says, if it's red light, once you've bought it, it's yours. He says, if you drive it off the lot and it falls in two pieces, both halves belong to you. You know what the truth is? You better know what you're getting into. Do you know that the God of heaven, he knows what he's getting into? When he saved you, he didn't save you thinking you was going to be bulletproof. I'm not encouraging you to sin. I just know you're going to sin. I'm not encouraging you to mess up. I just know you, like me, you're going to mess up from time to time. And guess what? When God bought us, he bought us red light. We was broke down. We was in a mess. We had so much problem. I mean, listen, we, our valves was leaking. The oil was running out. Uh, the engine was knocking. When he bought us, he didn't buy us for the paint job. He didn't buy us because we ran good. He didn't buy us for all the options. He bought us because he loved us, because he cared about us. It was an act of mercy and compassion. And listen now, if you fall apart tomorrow, he'll still own both halves. You belong to him. That's not going to change. He knows what you are. Preacher, I just mess up so much. Well... Join the club. You know? I mean, if we was perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior. 
but we're not, and so we do. Once you notice not only the compassion that he shows in being counted as his people, and notice not only the consideration that he shows, but notice the covenant that's pointed to. How, how does all this happen? Verse 17 says this, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, I don't know when you plan on messing up, but I promise it will fall within those two parameters. From everlasting to everlasting. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children. You say, preacher, I'm worried about my grandchildren. So's God. So's God. He loves them. He cares about them. It says this, to such as keep His covenant and to those that remember His commandments to do them. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is a covenant. He's talking about the relationship that, that God had with the nation of Israel. And that was a relationship of law. Isn't that right? Isn't that true? And the law is of works, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians teaches us. If you were a part of the law, that means you had to abide in the law and do the law. But you and I, we're not part of that law covenant. We're not part of that Old Testament. We're part of that New Testament. And our covenant that we have with God is not the covenant of the law that was given. And Paul spends an entire letter writing to the Galatian church to try to convey this truth to them that you and I, by faith, we're not part of the law. The law is not of faith. It is of works. So the covenant that David is pointing to was a covenant of law, and it was a covenant with the nation of Israel. But you and I, we have a covenant far greater than that. We have the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, do you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? I preach this so much, but it's funny. I don't, no matter how much I preach it, it's still good. I, it's like you can never preach it out. Amen? Did you know that God, in Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham? And when He makes this covenant, I don't know if you're aware of this, but a covenant is a two-part thing. Can I use a word we might be kind of familiar with? Contract. Contract. That's what a covenant was. It was entered by two or more parties, and it was a mutual pledge to perform the duties of that, of that contract, of that covenant. So God made a covenant with Abraham. But how did He make that covenant with Abraham? What did Abraham have to do? Well, God goes through a big laundry list. He says, I'm going to give you a seed that's going to perpetuate the nation of Israel, and that nation is then going to go into darkness, but I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and out of darkness. God makes this big covenant with him. Then He says, all right, Abraham, it's time for us to seal this covenant. Now, here's how they usually do a covenant. They'd take an animal, be it a beast or a lamb or, or sometimes birds, if that's all that they had, and they would take and they would cut those things in two. I know that upset Peter, but God's okay with it. They'd cut those animals, they'd slay them in two, and they would lay them, half of the animal on this side and half the animal on that side. And in between, there would be blood all over the ground. And what they would do is they would grab hand in hand or arm in arm and the two people that were a part of that covenant, they would walk down the length of that, of that bloody path and turn around and then they would walk back, uh, back. And it was a sign that a covenant had been made betwixt them, a covenant by blood. Now, you say, what does that have to do with Abraham? Well, God does this with Abraham in Genesis 15. He says, Abraham, I want you to get the sacrifice ready. Abraham, he gets the sacrifice ready. He lays it all out. Then God causes a, a deep sleep to fall over Abraham. So Abraham falls into a horror of darkness and a deep sleep, and he falls asleep. Well, when he wakes up, now remember, Abraham's already a part of that covenant because he's prepared it and got it ready. But when he wakes up, he sees a smoking fire or a smoking furnace and a burning lamp floating down the length of that sacrifice and back. You say, who was that? That was God. The book of Hebrews says this, that God, when He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself. <laughs> when God made the covenant, you know what He did? He said, all right, Abraham, you've got to be a part of this thing, so you're going to get it ready. 
So Abraham gets it ready. By faith, believing this covenant is going to take place. Then God says, all right, Abraham, you've believed, so now your part is done. So he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God, that by two immutable things, the writer of Hebrews said, in the which it was impossible for God to lie, God goes down that covenant. He makes a promise to himself that Abraham, righteousness will be imputed unto him by his faith, and that men, women, boys and girls can approach unto God and find forgiveness in faith. And so you and I, if we're children of faith, then we're the children of faithful Abraham. God makes a promise to Himself. Why? So that that promise can never be broken. See, David pointed (laughs) to an earthly covenant. But you and I, you know what we can do? You know why God pities us? You know why we're a child of God? Not because of an earthly covenant of doing works and performing rites and sacrifices, but because we've been brought into a covenant. Uh, one day, 2,000 years ago, God met Himself on dark Calvary. A horror of darkness fell over the earth and over that place. And God entered into a covenant with Himself. The blood was shed. The sacrifice was given. The Son looked to the Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now if you and I will come to Calvary by faith, we can partake in that covenant that God has made with Himself. Say, how do I know if it will keep true? Because God doesn't lie. Two immutable things. You know what immutable means? It means unchangeable. Let me tell you something. To move me from my salvation, you'd have to move God off His throne. I don't think you can do that. We see in this passage the covenant that's pointed to. And now finally, I want to give you one more thing. I hope this will help you. We see some benefits of serving God. We're covered by His pardon. We're counted as His people. But look at verse number 19. The Bible says this, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. That's my daddy. You understand that? I mean, we read that, and that sounds very grandiose. The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens. I mean, that, we think of that. We, we picture through. We did that series on the throne rooms. You go through all these throne room experiences in the Bible. Oh my, I remember Ezekiel's in particular, so vivid. You see the wheel inside the wheel. You see the, the, the angels uh, flashing forth as lightning. You hear their wings thundering forth as the sound of, uh, of heaven and as the sound of great uh, thunders. You see the fire enfolding itself at the very presence of God. You see all these things happening. You think, who could that? be so mighty and terrible and dreadful that rides upon the chariot of the angel's wings? Who could that be that sits upon that throne? That's the one I call Daddy. That's the one I cry out to and say, Abba, Father. And he bends his ear low and he hears my prayers. (laughs) We're the sheep of his pasture. We're his people. I think one of the benefits is recovered by his pardon. I think another one of them benefits is that we're counted as His people. I think one of the greatest benefits of being a child of God this morning is that we're controlled by His power. We're controlled by His power. Man, do you ever feel like things are out of control? It's funny how quickly your life can spin out of control. It's funny how you can wake up and everything's okay. And then before you go to bed that night, your world has just unfolded. And everything that you, that you anchored to, everything 
be it your house or your, or your spouse or your family or, or your finances, everything that you thought could not change, everything into which you would have run to like a tower and a refuge just goes away. Isn't it so funny? We live in such a fickle and such a changing and such a moving world. But understand that as a believer, our hope is not in this world. We have an anchor for the soul, the Hebrews writer said. Sure and steadfast, and that inner into that, innereth within to that, within the veil. We notice the power of His control. I like this. Well, we'll talk about it here. No, I'm going to talk about it now. We see it's a prepared power. I like this. You ever been caught unprepared? That ever happened to you before? You ever been caught unprepared? I have. Well, guess what? The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens. You see, nothing catches God by surprise. He's always prepared. Listen, He's not at the front end of time. He's not at the back end of time. He's outside of time. I know stuff that looks like yesterday to you and me don't look like yesterday to God. And things that look like tomorrow to you and me don't look like tomorrow to God. And everything within the scope that might enter within time is in the immediate presence of an almighty God. And He's prepared He's pre- you might not be prepared. You might not know what's going to happen, but He's prepared. He is always ready. We see that it is a prepared power, but then I like this. Look at this next phrase. He's prepared His throne in the heavens, but notice that it is a providential power. It says this, and His kingdom ruleth over all. I'll tell you something. Listen carefully. I hope you'll understand what I'm about to say. That wayward child you're praying for, the kingdom of God rules over the things in their life. I know that they may be wayward. I know they may be lawless. They may be rebellious right now. Hey, that brother, that sister that you're praying for, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God ruleth over all. The things that are going on in their life are ordered by an almighty God. They may strive against Him, and they have a free will. I understand that. And they'll make their choices. I understand that. But I understand this, that there's nothing outside of the scope of God's control. I learned this great truth when I was young in ministry. And I, and I, I learned it by watching a man that was really good in ministry. And then I learned it by watching a man that was really bad in ministry. And I learned this truth that you don't have to control things to be in control. Am I right? Some of you that have ever been in management, you know that's true. You don't have to control things to be in control. The pastor I grew up under, I grew up in a Christian school, most of you all know that. The pastor I grew up under, um, he he had control in that ministry. If he had wanted to, he could have walked any class at any time. He could have said, sit down, close your textbooks, open your Bibles, I'm preaching. He could have. The teacher would have stepped aside and said, yes, sir. He had control. But you know what? He never did that. You know why? Because he knew it wouldn't benefit the students. He was in control, but he didn't have to control. I'll tell you something. I'm not saying God is causing every problem in your life. 
I, I'm not saying that your, your actions aren't affecting things. I'm not saying that the actions of your children are not their own actions. They absolutely are. I'm not saying they don't. I, I, I believe. I, I don't know if anybody still believes this, but I still believe that God gave us a free will and God will save whosoever will. And, and I believe that whosoever won't is going to die and go to hell. I still believe that. I know they make their own choices. But that doesn't mean that it's spun out of God's control. God's still got His hand on everything in this little old piddly world. God's still seated upon the circle of the earth. God's still seated in the heavens. God's still, listen, He's not sitting in a recliner. He's still sitting on a throne. And He's got things in control. Well, you see, I've got several things, but I believe the Lord's done with me. I want to point to one more thing. We see not only the power of His control... We see the praise of His control, verse 22, 20 through 22. And you know what it basically is saying? It's saying, if you don't think there's a God in heaven, look around. That's what it's saying. Look, look at it, verse 20. It says, Bless the Lord, ye His angels that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye His hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. And then bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. You know what it's basically saying? It's saying that everything that hath breath ought to praise the Lord. And it's saying, if you wonder if there's a God in heaven, just open up your ears because there's a lot of folks praising God. We've got a whole room full of people. What I want to point to, though, is this. We see the peace of His control. Look at verse number 22. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. The psalmist closes with this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let me tell you something. If God can handle every problem in this world, why would you think He can't handle your problems? If the angels in heaven can rise up and praise Him for His sovereign power and glory, then why can't you and I do the same? Let me tell you something. There's folks, listen now, there's folks that are staring down death and have a peace from on high. And some of us, we're going to pieces because a bill came in the mail. We're going to pieces because there's some little scuffle or problem with somebody that we love and care about. It's interesting to me that the psalmist makes an imperative statement to himself. He commands himself to do something. We know that the soul or the seat of the emotions, we understand that, right? I mean, we understand it's our consciousness, that's who we are. The, the spirit is that part of us which, which deals and communicates with God, and, and, and that's why the lost man can't, because he's spiritually dead. And we understand that the body, I mean, that's, that's this thing. But the soul is our consciousness, our seat of emotions, our, our seat of awareness. And you know what the psalmist is doing? He's looking to himself and he's saying, just calm down. And bless the Lord. The Lord is upon His throne in heaven. So He's got things under control here on earth. His kingdom ruleth over all. Now let me ask you something. Who else in the world can say a thing like that but a child of God? <laughs> Who else in the world can say a thing like that? Listen, I don't care if you're president, if you're best friends with the president of the United States. You don't have any more security or surety than this boy standing right here. My heavenly Father is the God of all creation with a prepared throne and with a providential power. And my world may fall to pieces tomorrow, but guess what? He still owns both halves, and He's still in control of what's going on. Now, you may not have known all that when you got saved. Or listen, you may be here this morning, you may be saying, Oh, all that sounds good, preacher. I'd sure like all that. 
Well, that's good. I, I hope that before you leave here, you get that settled. But understand that all that means nothing when you're a lost sinner alienated from God. That's not for anybody except those that have come to know Christ as their Savior. But I've got good news for you. It's your choice this morning. You don't have to leave here in that condition. God loves you. God will save you. Oh, you'll shout about all those things later on, but your first and foremost priority ought to be the first thing the psalmist pointed to. You need to come to the Lord who forgiveth all thine iniquities, and He'll save you eternally.